one of the distinctives at fellowship is team leadership, valuing the gifts that God has uniquely made and given to each one of us. And it begins with a plurality of elders that serve together, but there's no one voice stronger than another. And then it works its way down through the church, certainly to our teaching team. If you are new to fellowship, haven't been around very long, you you might go, why is it that someone different teaches every single week? Well, that's intentional for us. It's a part of our teaching team that leads together. It happens also with our worship team as different worship leaders come and lead. And then throughout our organization as a church, all the different ministry areas are led in team environments where together we really believe that our, our leadership capacity and our leadership is, is better. It's, it's more Christ-like because it's not centered on one specific individual. And It's a privilege uh, to talk about team leadership this morning because we have made an addition to our team. I actually introduced uh, this man last fall, Rob Sweet. He's an addition to our teaching team. And, And what can be so neat about team in terms of the chemistry and the trust that builds over time is 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 also makes it, it also makes it very difficult to find someone to join that team and I said something along these lines last fall that we, we spent more than two years looking for a teaching pastor for Fellowship Franklin and it would just be almost but not quite and almost but not quite and this past summer we were introduced to uh, a guy Rob that, that just fit the bill he's a great communicator. He's a gifted leader, but that chemistry piece really worked. And and we've got strong leaders on our team, strong teachers, strong opinions on our team. And so for that to come together was a really sweet, sweet thing for us. And I want to give you just a little bit of his background in case you weren't here in the fall. And then I'll bring him up and pray for him as he's going to teach and lead us today. He teaches primarily at Fellowship Franklin, he'll be up here some, he'll be up here occasionally. He is a part of our teaching team, so our teaching team has gone from three to four. And some of what that affords us the opportunity to do is not, a, not only uh, a teach on a weekend and then have some breaks in between, but it also affords us the ability to teach at other campuses together where we want to teach live and, and lead worship in a, in a live way. It affords us the ability to launch other campuses around the city of Nashville, and we feel like it's healthy accountability to be able to do that together. So Rob Sweet, he he is um, from the University of Georgia, which is not good. That is not good. That's the only not good thing that I'll say this morning, at least. The University of Georgia, then he went to work for Chick-fil-A. He spent several years at Chick-fil-A helping to provide some coaching and consulting to owner-operators of stores around the southeast. Then went to Dallas Theological Seminary. If you weren't here in the fall, you'll have to ask him about his transition from the marketplace to ministry. Pretty neat story as to how God led him in that direction. And then served at, at, this will be the third church, McKinney Memorial Bible Church in Fort Worth, which actually is the church that I went to when I was a student at TCU. We didn't overlap, but have that in common. And then went to work in Johnson City at a church very like-minded to who we are as a teaching pastor and now here as a teaching pastor. And one of the things that's true about Rob that I think you'll feel even this morning as you just begin to get to know him is that Rob is truly a humble servant leader. That, that's just the essence of who he is. You'll, you'll probably feel it. 
He, he is a guy that just comes alongside in his leadership. And he actually described himself that way in the interview process, that I'm just a guy that really enjoys coming alongside to help lead, to help encourage, to help shepherd those around me. And uh, he does that very, very well. And I'm so grateful to have him. He, he's become a good friend to me already in the last five or six months. And he has been a great encouragement to me over the last seven or eight weeks as I've been struggling with some things in my own life. And so it's not only a privilege to have him as a part of the organization, it's a privilege to call Rob Sweet friend. And so would you join me as we welcome Rob Sweet to Fellowship Brentwood? Would you join me in that? Thanks, buddy. Glad you're here. I really am. I'm going to pray for him and then we'll dive in. Would you join me? God, thanks. For the privilege that it is to stand next to this man, thanks for who you've made him, how you've gifted him, thanks for his humility, his teachability, his vulnerability, his willingness to change and grow day in, day out, week in, week out, with his family, in his role here, and in his own personal life as a man. Uh, Thanks for his unique gifting, ability to teach the Bible well and to lead well. Thanks for the team at Franklin that he helps lead, that that you are are forming and deepening. And thanks for the incredible response from that community of faith as people have truly invested, reached out to others to invite them to engage God's word around a church. I am so grateful for all of those things. And this morning, I, I pray that you would allow us to engage directly with you. Your spirit is always present when we gather in your name. Your power is formidable in our lives such that you can change us in the very reading of your word, certainly the teaching of your word as well. So I pray that you'd help all of us that sit out in the congregation this morning and listen to forget that there's a new guy teaching. Just let us forget that to forget that there is someone that we might uh, evaluate. and say, Well, how does he fit the team? I, I pray that we'd forget all that and that your spirit would be at work in us, that we would be open to that work in us and that you would truly change us. Your word has the power to do that. And thanks for this man's willingness to help make that clear for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You bet. Well... It is great to be here. My wife Jody attended the service last evening here, and uh, Bill gave a very similar introduction. And she told me later when we were home, she said, Bill gave a really gracious introduction of you. I think I detected that little twinkle in her eye that meant he gave more of a gracious introduction of you than you deserved. And I said, yes, he did. But uh, my wife, myself, our three daughters, our whole family, we're just excited to be here. We're excited to be a part of this body, this work that God has been doing here at Fellowship. Fellowship Brentwood, Fellowship Franklin. Uh, For those of you that haven't been here long, I'm certainly new myself. Three years ago, the elders and the leadership team here at this campus felt God leading them to start a new campus, and that's what's been happening for three years at Franklin. And I'm just joining the party, and I can tell you God is doing great things down at that place. I know many of you have friends there. Perhaps you've been down there and encouraged the body down there as well. 
Uh, it's a group that's growing both in numbers but also in the way that they're learning to love each other, come together as a body. And it's just, just sweet what God is doing, uh, no pun intended. I always say that and I realize, yeah, i got to stop using my own name in vain. But it is sweet <laughs> what, uh, what God is doing at Fellowship Franklin. I'm just thrilled to be a part of it. And I want to thank you all, this body, both the leadership as well as you, the congregation, for your financial giving, your emotional support, just the way that you have birthed that other work that God is doing down there. It's very exciting for me to be a part of it. Well, I want to jump right into this series called The Word of God, Written, Living, Active. And I want to begin just with a brief recap because today is actually part three of a three-part introduction to this whole series. So think back two weeks ago, for those of you that were here, Lloyd was here and he used an analogy of a, of a set of books that he brought to say a lot of times we tend to think about Scripture in some categories that just don't hold up, that don't have the same weight of the Word of God. So an encyclopedia or a, or a self-help guide or a car owner's manual, we tend to kind of have some ideas about Scripture that aren't full, that aren't right. And the big idea was that any view of Scripture less than Scripture's own view of itself is inadequate. But he also pointed us to a different image, this idea of a pitcher of clear, life-giving water. And our prayer as we teach and prepare these messages is that we as a body would come to see the Word of God more like water that we need, that would refresh us, that we've got to have because we are thirsty people. And this is the image you see on the screen behind me, the image you see in the front of your program, the image we'll keep coming back to throughout. And then last week, Bill shared a little bit of his journey and his story and walked us through Psalm 139. The idea being that we need to begin with the end in mind. What, what would a person look like who has this view of Scripture that it is life-giving and that it is what they need and kind of the big idea from last week was we need to know it's true, feel delight in it, and then read it for all it's worth. This morning in this message called The Word, On the Word, we're going to ask the question, what was Jesus' view of Scripture? What was his opinion on it? How did he interact with it? How did he use it? What did he think of it? How did he affirm it? And as we've thought about this question, you know, we, the teaching team, digging into these messages together in partnership, we realize there's really a deeper question to that question. The deeper question is, not only what was Jesus' view of Scripture, but what is his relationship to Scripture? How is it that we call him the Word and we call this the Word? What's that relationship like? So we're going to explore both of those questions this morning, and then we're going to close by asking, what does all that mean for us as we interact with this text. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. It's going to be a couple minutes till we get there, but I want you to go ahead and be turning there. We're going to be in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. I want to set this up this way. You think about Jesus' view of the scripture. One of the images, the analogies that came to my mind was when I was growing up. In fact, I remember the exact date. I had just turned 13. It was September of that year. And as a 13-year-old boy, my parents brought home from the video store. You guys remember video stores? They brought home a VHS tape called The Princess Bride. 
And uh, they said, this is what we're going to watch for family night. Now, 13-year-old boy, I saw the title and I thought, no way, you know, The Princess Bride. There's going to be nothing about this movie that I would like. Of course, if you've watched that movie, you know it's made for 13-year-old boys. So my brother and I, as soon as that movie was done on that Friday night, we hit the rewind button on the VCR and started it again. And then the next day we watched it again and we ended up buying a copy and wore that movie out. Now, I bring up this movie to say this was the first movie that I could say I had that thing memorized. Backwards and forwards. I bet some of you have a movie or two or three or If you're Michael Easley, I think he's got about 50 of them memorized. And you could quote those lines. That is the way that Jesus seemed to have internalized the scripture. He loved it to that degree. He learned it to that degree so that it was constantly on his lips. Think about all the times that Jesus quoted Scripture, certainly in his teaching and his preaching, for sure. He based his message on the message from the Old Testament. He saw his message as a continuation of it, as we're going to see in a minute. But also in his temptation. You remember where he went in his temptation? He went to Deuteronomy. He went to the Word of God. And then in his suffering on the cross, he's quoting Psalms. The word of God was on his lips in his own personal life, in his prayer life, in his conversations with his friends, in his teaching, in his suffering. He had so internalized it because of his delight and confidence in it. You might say it just this way. Jesus knew the Old Testament scriptures, which was his Bible, by the way. He knew them intimately and referenced them constantly. There's something else you should know about Jesus' view of Scripture, and that is he treated Old Testament people and events as actual history. So he referred, for example, to Jonah and the fish. And he didn't use it in the sense of of that wives' tale or that fairy tale or that illustration of Jonah and the fish. No, he said, just as that event happened in history, so I too will be buried. I will be in the earth for three days and then be risen up. He referred to Noah and the flood. He referred to Moses, certainly. He referred to Sodom and Gomorrah and the events there and Lot and his wife and all of these things. There was just an assumption as he communicated about God's word that these things really happened. That was certainly Jesus' perspective. Bear that in mind. And then finally, Jesus affirmed the truthfulness and authority of God's word down to the very smallest detail. And this is what I want you to see in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to read two verses beginning in 17. The context is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is going to get to the heart of his teaching for his ministry. He says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. A couple of things I want to point out about this text. The first is the phrase, the law or the prophets. Now, Jesus wasn't skipping around and just pulling out certain sections of the Old Testament. That was an expression in that day that essentially meant the whole of the Scriptures. We would say in our Bible, Genesis to Revelation, in Jesus' text that he had to him at that time, it was Genesis to Malachi. Moses through the end of the prophets. The second thing to note is this idea of the smallest letter or stroke. 
If you have uh, learned the King James Version, or perhaps you have the King James or New King James, uh, even in front of you this morning, you'll see these funny little words, jot and tittle. You've heard that expression, the jot and the tittle. What is that referring to? Well, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet was the letter Yod. If you were going to write that, it looks just like the English apostrophe. It's this tiny little letter that can be missed if you're not careful. Now, the smallest stroke of a letter would refer to a tiny little slip of a pen that could change one letter to another letter. So, for example, think about the difference between our English capital P and our English capital R. The only difference is that diagonal stroke that comes down. Jesus is saying, right down to the smallest stroke of the pen, none of it will fall away because all of it is true all of it is authoritative. This is how I would summarize Jesus' view of Scripture. He affirmed the highest possible view of God's Word. I like the way Kevin DeYoung said it. Kevin is a pastor and an author. He's written a book called Taking God at His Word that's been helpful for us as a teaching team as we've prepared for this series Kevin DeYoung wrote, It is impossible to revere the scriptures more deeply or affirm them more completely than Jesus did. Now, I don't know if that matters to you. That matters to me a lot. I know some of you in this room, you you may not have a strong opinion of what Jesus had to say about anything, perhaps. Maybe you've just come kind of exploring. Maybe a friend invited you here. Maybe you you really actually kind of don't even want to be here. And I get that. I understand that. I'd even say, we're glad you're here. I'm thankful that you're on this journey with us. But I will tell you something. I hope it matters something to you to think about that the single person in history that had the most influence, the most impact, the most, the most history-changing work ever done, he had the highest possible view of the Word of God that a person could have. And for those of you that call yourselves, like I would, a Christian or a follower of Jesus, I think there's a point where we can say, you know, what my master, what my savior, what my king thought and spoke and believed about these scriptures, that means something to me. I want to follow him in that. I know for me, as I've gone through seasons of my life where I've wrestled with questions and doubt, one of the things that has anchored my faith is to look upon my Savior and say, just look at the way he spoke about the word of God and lived out the word of God. It gives me so much confidence, so much faith. Well, I want us to keep moving. We've talked about this idea of what did Jesus believe or how did he view the scripture. I want to talk about what I think is a deeper question, and that is what's his relationship to the scripture. And I would say it this way. If you want your opinion and view of the word of God to shift from one of these other categories to this life-giving water that you would desire and thirst after, I think this question is critical for you to understand what this word has to do with the word. The word made flesh. I want to kind of give you two big ideas as we explore this question of what was Jesus' relationship to Scripture. The first is that Jesus fulfills 
the word of God. We already saw that in verse 17 of Matthew 5. I'll read it to you one more time. Do not think, Jesus says, I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. I want you to look at this at one more place. One of my favorite stories of the New Testament is in Luke chapter 24. So just flip over a couple of books to your right in God's word. Luke chapter 24 Here's what's going on. Jesus has just risen from the grave, but there's a lot of confusion. These women have gone, found an empty tomb. They're saying, hey, he appeared to us. There's a lot of confusion. The body's not there, but could he actually be alive? Two of Jesus' followers, not not two of the 12, but two of the other followers, were walking from Jerusalem to a town called Emmaus, And as they walked to this town, all of a sudden another man joined them. They did not recognize him, but it was Jesus, the risen, resurrected Jesus. And they begin sharing with him their angst over the events, how the one they hoped could be Messiah had been killed. But now there were rumors that maybe he had risen from the grave, but how could this be? And this is what Jesus says to them in verse 25 of Luke 24. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Man, I wish I would have been there for that. So just imagine Jesus himself explaining to these men how all of the scripture from Genesis all the way through the last prophet Malachi were talking about him, were pointing to him. You might say it this way, every page of scripture points to Jesus. Now, how is that possible? Because so much of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, doesn't actually say anything about Messiah. It doesn't contain any reference to Jesus whatsoever, right? Jesus is saying, and Jesus taught these men, that if you think about the whole narrative of the Bible, the fulfillment, the completion, the fullness of God's word and God's work are found in him. So you could say that every page of the Bible finds its completion and its fullness in Jesus Christ. The best way that I've seen this articulated is actually in the doctrinal statement from the seminary that I went to. And let me, I just want to read it to you how they framed this up because I think it's so clear. We believe that all the scriptures center about the Lord Jesus Christ and his person and work in his first and second coming. And hence that no portion, even of the Old Testament, is properly read or understood until it leads to him. Now why does this matter? There's a question that each of us has to answer when we approach the word of God. And the question is, is this book primarily about me or primarily about Jesus? Now let me explain what I mean because you're thinking, of course it's not about me. My name's not in this. But isn't that how we often approach the Bible? That that we're going to read it to make our lives better? Or that when we're really stuck almost out of desperation, surely there's something in here for me that I can get comfort from, that that I can take steps forward in my life, that God desires me to have a better life. Now, don't get me wrong. 
There's a lot of those kinds of things in here. And God does desire for you to be taking steps forward and to be comforted in areas of your life. But the scripture was not primarily written for you. It is not about you. It is about Jesus. He's the hero. The narrative centers around him. And the the reason that that's important is it will change the way you view the Bible. And you'll start to see yourself swept up in this grand narrative about this God who took on flesh to do a work in this world that creation is still resounding with 2,000 years later and is building to a fuller completion that we look forward to. That's the narrative. And our task is simply to, to, to ask the question, how am I swept up in this? What does this mean for me? But it's not about us. It's about Jesus. Not only does Jesus affirm the word of God, he fulfills the word of God, but there's one more place we've got to go this morning. He embodies the word of God. Now we're going to get to John 1. Flip over a page from Luke 24 to John chapter 1. I know some of you have been wondering, when are we going to get to John 1? Well, here we are. I want to read three verses, the first three verses, and then I'll I'll skip down to 14. This is the way that John, who the Bible describes as the closest friend to Jesus during his earthly ministry, this is the way that John begins his retelling of the story of this man, Jesus In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Now look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, I love these verses. They are some of my favorite. They're some of the most majestic words in all of Scripture, but I'll be honest. There's a lot of times I, I, don't, I, I don't get it. How, how is it that a person who, yes, was God, you know, fully God, fully man, but how, how was it that he was also the Word? I don't understand the connection there, and a lot has been written about that. You could research for the rest of your life and read wonderful things written about this, but, but I, want us to, I want to take us to two places when you think about this, and the question I want to delve into, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Word? How is it that we call this the word and we call him the word? What are the, how are they related to one another? And, and I think we can get a lot of life from thinking about two principles about language. Two things to keep in mind about words. The first is words are expressions of ourselves. So how do I know you if we're in relationship? A lot of times I know you through your words. Uh, Think about a man and a woman who began a relationship through long-distance correspondence. Maybe they started sort of as as letter-writing pen pals, or these days it would be sort of an online dating. They exchange emails, and there's some correspondence that happens. They may even begin to fall in love through the words of the other person without ever having met the person in the flesh. And, of course, then there comes that moment where they meet that person that they've begun to know through the person's words, and they're just thinking, I sure hope he or she was true to their words. <laughs> Will they really be like I hope and think they are? 
There's a sense that this is what has happened in Israel's history. God has been in covenantal relationship with them through his words. And John says then, at the moment in time God ordained, he showed up. He met them in person. The word that had always been as God took on flesh and appeared. The full self-revelation of God in the Word made flesh, Jesus Christ. So that's one sense that Jesus is the Word of God. He's the full expression of God that had only been partially revealed through Word, now is revealed through Word made flesh. There's a second thing I think we need to keep in mind about words, about language and communication, and that is words are not just passive, they're active. Let me explain. We tend to think about words as simply just the exchange of information. This is who I am, this is where I live, this is my kids, this is my job. Now let me ask about you. The reality is that anytime we're exchanging words, something is happening. There's activity. Relationships are being built or relationships are being destroyed. Things happen. Words do things. I'll give you the clearest example that I can think of as a pastor. I have the privilege from time to time to marry a man and a woman. And it always amazes me as I stand up there at the end of the ceremony after they have taken their vows. I'm holding the word of God before me. And and by its authority, I proclaim to them that they are now husband and wife. And at the moment of my proclamation, something changes. They have a different identity in God's economy. They even have a different identity in the state's economy in the state's perspective how is it that these words spoken by a pastor could do that words do things think about the fact that anytime you make a promise you're obligating yourself to someone else and you're inviting them to trust you and if you fulfill that promise your relationship will take a step forward and be built stronger. If you break that promise, your relationship takes a step backward and is destroyed. Words do things. They're not just passive. Now, why do I go here? There's a little bit of a philosophical excursus. I go there because I want you to think about how God uses words. You might say it this way, so much of God's work In this creation throughout time, he has accomplished through words. He spoke the cosmos into being. He said, let there be light. Let there be a separation of the waters. Let there be life on this planet. Let there be, let there be, let there be. His words created all of this. Think about how God formed a people, formed a nation. He proclaimed a covenant. He made a promise to Abraham. That promise formed a people, formed a nation. Think about how God 
led and guided and corrected those people through his words spoken through the law, through his words through the prophets. Even think about your salvation and my salvation, how at the moment of your faith in Jesus Christ, you change from death to life, to hopeless, to hopeful, to an eternity separated from God, to an eternity with God. Why is that? Because you were declared righteous. Because of the work of Jesus on your behalf, you didn't do anything. A word was spoken and you were declared righteous. God does things through his words. You might say it this way, you almost can't separate the word of God from the work of God. And at the right moment in redemptive history, the word of God took on flesh. Took on arms that would be stretched out for us took on hands that would be pierced, took on blood that would be spilt as the fullness of the work of God for us. So these two principles, number one, words are expressions of ourselves. So Jesus is the word in the sense that he's the embodiment of God's presence. And words are active. So Jesus was the word in the sense that he's the embodiment of God's work. You might say it this way. Because Jesus is the fulfillment and the embodiment of the word of God. An encounter with it is an encounter with him. So what? Why does that matter to you today? Why does that matter to you later this week as you open God's word, as you sort of try again to sort of change your perspective from this to this, as you hope to find delight in these words? Here's what I think it means. If you will believe this, as you read, as you hear, as you meditate on God's words, you get Christ's presence with you and you get Christ's work in you. And I believe that's really true. I believe you can't separate the word of God from the presence of God and the work of God. So something happens, as Bill was referring to earlier, something happens when we read, something happens when we listen to a sermon or share in a Bible study or meditate on the scripture throughout the day. The Holy Spirit, which is referred to as the Spirit of Christ in the New Testament, is actively working in us and is present with us in a unique and powerful way as we're in this book. Now, if that doesn't just stir you a little bit to be excited about digging in this a little bit deeper, I want to go to one more place as we wrap up that I hope will. We're going to close with a scene from Jesus' final meal with his best friends, his 12 followers. It must have been an emotional night for him. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 15. Just flip over a little bit in the gospel of John. I want to set this up this way. Jesus is having this meal on the very night he'll be arrested. He's going to be crucified the next morning. They don't understand that. He knows that. And here's the irony of the passage we're going to read in John 15. Jesus is about to leave. But he's telling his disciples how they can be with him while he is gone. You feel that tension? 
And he's already told them about the Spirit, and that's a big part of it. But then he says this, and, and I just want you to think about what Jesus is saying in John 15. I'm just going to read four of these verses, beginning in verse 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now look down at verse 7 and notice the words that I emphasize. If you abide in me, Jesus says, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full I don't know if you caught that. Here's what Jesus is saying. The way that you stay close to me is by staying close to my words. And as you do that, friends, as you do that, followers, as you do that, disciples, you will begin to have my joy in you. And your joy may be full. Now, I chase happiness a lot in my life, but I know what I really long for is joy. Jesus is saying that the key to finding his joy is to stay close to him, and the way you stay close to him is to stay close to your words, his words. Bottom line, this is why we read the Bible, to encounter The word to encounter this one who is our savior, who is our redeemer, who is our friend, who is our king, who is our Lord. The one that we need more than life itself. The one that is there when we're stumbling through this existence. The one that is there when we forget that he is there and we encounter him and he works in us as we spend time in this book. Now, I can't understand exactly how that works. I just believe it to be true. My guess is many of you in this room have experienced that. And our prayer as we continue through this series is that we as a body will experience Christ in his word. So the way that we want to respond this morning is we are going to proclaim something using words of our own. We're going to sing a song. It was a song that was introduced to us last week. It's actually a creed put to music. And I want you to think about what's going to happen after I pray. We're going to stand and sing this song. And if you believe the words on the screen, you will be singing them and proclaiming back to God things that are true. In other words... You will be speaking back to the God who spoke to you, agreeing with his word. And when that happens, relationship is enhanced. Relationship is built. This is a way that we have communication with God through prayer, through worship, through singing, through our own hearts as we hear from him. We're going to respond that way this morning. So bow your heads as we pray. Our Father, 
we don't fully understand all of this. You have given us things far too wonderful to comprehend in this book. But Father, help us by faith to believe. Help us to understand that the words on these pages are so much more than just words. Your presence is in them. Your work is in them. Father, my prayer for this body, even right now, is that as we sing this song, our relationships with you would take steps forward. That we would proclaim what we believe in response to what we have heard from you. In the great name of our Savior, Jesus, the Word made flesh, we pray. Amen.